tax tax, which is always exciting. GST reform. That's a great idea. Have a more efficient tax. Due diligence now. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Tax Wrap, uh, episode 16 this week. My name is Nathan Hewitt, and today we're joined by Andy and Reese Agland, our head of superannuation. How are you doing, guys? Oh, very well for uh, Friday. Yeah. yeah, doing okay. Looking forward to the long weekend. Oh, absolutely. Labor Day Monday. Can't wait for that. <laughs> Only in Victoria, of course. Well, that's no, true, most yeah. states. For just a... not WA. WA was last week. Ah. Okay, apologies to our WA listeners, just to take you back to last week. <laughs> We can't repeat the same sort of uh, frivolity as this week. Now, we're going to be talking about the intergenerational report, which was released yesterday. Um, and the report itself was overdue, I understand. It was meant to be released a month ago. Is that right? Or? Yeah, I mean, the intergenerational report is a report that's meant to be done every five years. Yes, yeah. uh, it's basically looking forward 30, 40, 50 years. Where is Australia going to be? What's the government expenditure going to look like? Uh, that kind of stuff. So... Uh, the government has held off releasing it um, till now. And I guess there are a lot of uh, implications or a lot of things that were discussed in the superannuation sphere, which is, Reese, why we've got you on board this week. So what are the things that are hinted at in, this, in the uh, intergenerational report in relation to superannuation? Well, it doesn't actually specifically say anything other than it says that the government will consider several aspects of the superannuation system as part of the review of the tax system. Uh, And that sounds rather innocuous when you actually (laughs) think about what that means. It means we're going to actually seriously look at tax issues in in superannuation. It hasn't said what those are going to be, though, so we're not sure. Uh, But it's clear that super tax issues are back on board, are back on those issues that they're going to look at. I guess one of the things, Reese, is that um, you know, with the government's impending tax white paper, which is uh, expected to come out at the end of the year, we'll hopefully start to see some of those issues come to the fold and uh, open for debate. But the the actual intergenerational report is uh, very uh, very important in terms of working out how we formulate that tax system, mm. uh, not only for short term views but also into the long term as uh, particularly with respect to the next 40 years. Yeah, it is very important. And and I do think that superannuation tax issues need to be put on the table. Uh, and I would rather be part of the broader white paper rather than something looking at it separately, looking to fill some budgetary holes. Uh, it shouldn't be on that. It needs to look at the long-term future. Uh, one of the things that the intergenerational report said it was I found quite interesting was was saying that uh, Australia expects to be spending about 2.7% of GDP in 2054-55 on uh, pension payments, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually less than today. In monetary terms, it'll go from $2,000 per person up to 3200 Okay, But it's quite low internationally. Look at European countries at the moment. You've got countries like uh, Italy spends 15% of its GDP currently on just wow. purely on pensions. France spends 14%. Belgium spends 10%, Sweden 8%, and look at Greece, it currently spends 16%. Uh, This is only going to get worse for those countries, and one of the reasons why Australia is in a much better position is because of the superannuation system, which is taking some of the burden off government. The concern, though, is if you start tinkering with some of the taxes in super, you might reduce the overall benefits that people get at retirement, which means the government will be spending more money on pensions than it's forecasting. So it's very interesting how those superannuation tax will 
interact with the future generations of what government will be spending on the pension. Mm. We, were, um, we were talking about this off air, Reese. Um, you know, some of our uh, local neighbours, such as Japan, have got a really ageing population. And I think, you know, they're arguably a model that we should be looking at in terms of how they deal with some of these issues because they've got a very high rate of octogenarians. Um, and it's, I guess it's something that we should be uh, looking at as a, as a model in terms of how we formulate our tax policy or, for that matter, how uh, we, some lessons that we can learn from how they've uh, some of the things they might not have been doing correctly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Japan is an interesting case study for the rest of the world because it's reached that tipping point a lot earlier than other countries. Uh, so how it deals with an ageing population with the increase in expenditure on health as well as ex ex uh, increase in expenditure on pensions, uh, also the ability of people to actually pay money into this, the tax system. If you're heavily dependent on income tax as your main source, but a lot of your population is in retirement and not being taxed on that, then you're going to be see some real impacts on the budgetary bottom line. Mm -hmm. So the government needs to look at that issue and how it can deal with that. And, and Europe is the, the next tier below as well in terms of... Europe is probably four or five years behind. Uh, some of the southern European countries tend to be worse than the northern Europeans. They tend to have a more of an ageing population, uh, less growth, uh, and more people leaving, the, leaving those countries. So... Uh, yeah, for Europe, they will be an interesting benchmark to, to see for the other countries. And again, that's reflected by those numbers. You look at the lower countries like Italy and Greece, uh, compared to like Sweden and the United Kingdom, it's, it's almost twice as much that they're paying. Mm. So, you know, they're ahead of that curve. Now, Reese, there was something that I wanted to ask you about in relation to the intergenerational report. Uh, one of the biggest issues that, um, well, one of the biggest divides that was uh, sort of brought to light in the intergenerational report was the fact that there's um, only 14% of the property market at the moment, or an estimated around 14% of the property market is first home buyers, the rest belonging to investors. Now, um, there's been a lot of discussion as to previous generations, like the baby boomers sort of um, taking up that slice of the market and making it harder for younger people to enter the housing market. Um, what would you say the SMSF sector has to answer for or will contribute to this kind of divide in, in future years, given that people can um, invest with their SMSFs and, and sort of, um, do you think that will make it harder for first-home buyers in the future? Or um, It will be interesting to, to see how that goes. Um, the percentage increase in the number of SMSF with uh, property is, is quite high, but the overall percentage of SMSF assets in that area is, is quite low. So mm -hmm. it's, it's coming off a very low basis. Uh, there is some talk about it being uh, pushing some people out of the market, but I'm not sure the SMSFs are the, the single biggest impact on that. I think the biggest impact is the fact we're not, we've got increasing populations, but we're not building homes. Yeah. Uh, and that's the biggest impact on pushing up prices. Well, it's also a case of um, investors getting access to a lot of tax concessions. I mean, there's CGT concessions, there's negative gearing, things like that. So uh, first-home buyers really, well, a lot of first-home buyers don't have the, the knowledge to sort of access these kinds of things, or they just can't. Um, by definition. So Andy, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think uh, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago and, uh, you know, the, the benefits of uh, negative gearing for, for property investors. It is something that, you know, should be looked at, um, particularly in the white paper process to work out whether uh, negative gearing itself still contains its, its benefits. Obviously, the economics in terms of 
the housing market, housing prices, and we'll leave that to qualified uh, economists to fight mm. amongst themselves. But in terms of the actual benefits themselves, there are generous concessions there. Uh, and it can, to some extent, drive uh, the push, particularly by those uh, baby boomers who want to buy properties in their own name as individuals to, to pursue that. And obviously the 50% general discount on capital gains, again, is, is a benefit. Mm. So all those things combined should be revisited. The Henry Rev Review did uh, say that uh, it may be worth you know only allowing you to include 40% of the income and only claiming 40% of the deductions with, res with respect to a certain, certain negatively geared property. But okay. obviously that, you know, that's been put to the wayside. But you do have those sorts of issues uh, coming to the fore. So worth revisiting in the actual uh, tax reform white paper. Okay. Yeah, I think there is an, a real issue there for the younger generations getting into property, mm. um, buying their own house. It is the the dream of most Australians to buy their own house. Australia has traditionally had a much higher ownership of, of people owning their own homes than, say, Europe, where a lot of people rent for their life. Yeah. Uh, and the question is, really, do we want to take on that European model where people are renting all their life, or do we want to open it up for younger generations to actually get into their first home? Mm. Um, it's it's a policy issue that, that must be addressed. It can't be allowed to, to linger any longer. And I think that the fact that it has lingered has created this sort of um, cultural dilution a little bit, because and myself, um, you know, having not entered the property market, not owning my own home, but my parents do. So it's something that when they were bought their first home, it was significantly less than what I could hope to pay for the same sort of thing today. But I still sort of look at their cultural values of wanting to own their own home and have a family. And it, it, I'm sort of met with this wall of it's actually inaccessible, that the property market is very inaccessible for someone in my financial situation at my age. So you're kind of dealing with that cultural divide. But coming back to SMSF, the SMSF sector, um, Reese, you don't see SMSF investments in, in the property market as being enough of a burden to really worry about in the coming years? Uh, it is going to be more of an issue, but the thing is, the well, the Murray report suggested that there shouldn't be any borrowing in superannuation to begin with. So if the government goes down that track, then 90% of investment in homes uh, by SMSFs will, will die off because most of them do it through uh, LRBAs, uh, limited recourse borrowing arrangements. If these become unviable, then you will see the SMSF sector getting out of homes. You won't see it necessarily getting out of other property. Uh, a lot of the property the SMSF own is, is actually uh, retail property or business property. Mm -hmm. uh, so you won't see a change in that market, but you might see a change in relation to uh, the, the home market. Okay. Now, Andy, uh, in relation to the intergenerational report, a bracket creep and high personal income taxes um, also impact on participation incentives for some people. So, what what's the deal with? Yeah, what 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 the uh, what the report did say, um, Nathan, was that um, the tax to GDP ratio uh, in the long term uh, will reach twenty three point nine percent of GDP in twenty twenty to twenty twenty one. Now, currently, that sits for us anyway. At the present moment, it sits around 22%. So, essentially, a lot of that... So, essentially, what it's saying is that we, we'll need a lot more tax to pay for some of these things that we need. Um, the government states in the actual report that the uh, a lot of that will be generated through bracket creep. So, bracket creep's when you go into the next 
uh, income tier mm -hmm. uh, in your income, uh, personal income tax rates. And so that, you know, people, individuals will start paying more tax. That's where they're going to generate some of that uh, from. We've always maintained, and I've spoke, spoken about this in the past, that, you know, should we be looking at, uh, you know, indexing those uh, marginal tax rates so that those who are on slightly higher incomes uh, don't get affected too mm -hmm. much because they get a nice decent pay rise. So they're things that, that the government needs to, to think about. Uh, the other thing that the government also noted in the uh, in the report was uh, was the fact that you know companies in general in Australia pay too much tax. Uh, the corporate tax rate current, currently being thirty percent relative mm -hmm. to their peers in other OECD uh, countries. So, what is that saying overall? Uh, it's saying that Australia is a high income taxing nation, mm. and so. What do we infer from that? We infer that the GST debate is back on the agenda, yeah. and we've spoken about that in the past. And uh, I think, in terms of you know paying for the things that we need forty years down the track, I think the government is hinting at the fact that uh, GST is back on the agenda. Whether we increase the rate or whether we broaden the base, uh, they're things that are up for consideration. Obviously, the Prime Minister at his National Press Club address a few weeks ago did say that this requires consensus from the states. Mm. So, um, and in my view, um, in the, the actual white paper process, we'll probably start to see some of the areas where they believe, you know, they might suggest the rate increase to 12, 12 and percent. Mm. We might take away certain uh, benefits that are currently GST free. So, so it's a matter of watch this space, but we'll start to see some of these things come to light towards the end of the year and then that would obviously form part of the policy that uh, the government puts forward in the, uh, the in the election Absolutely. next year. Yeah, I think we are going to see uh, a range of people, not just the government, talking about uh, raising the GST, uh, what impact this could have and why we need it. I mean, I think if you look at the issue with an ageing population, if you've got less people working, uh, earning income that way, um, and if SMSF, oh, superannuation pensions are untaxed, then those people aren't getting taxed on their income. Mm. How are those people going to pay their fair share of the tax? The only way that's really going to be through is, is the GST. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot more of this debate going forward. Well, it just increases our excitement even further for the tax white paper, doesn't it? Uh, I think it's it will have some measures that will be immediate and some are more to be put on the radar and to just build up the argument. So maybe not in the next year or two, but in four or five years' time, mm. they'll start to come on board. Fair enough. Well, this has been Tax Wrap episode 16. Uh, thanks again for joining us. It's been Andy, Reese, and Nathan. Thanks, guys. See ya. See ya.